So last time we finished up talking about hypotheses, uh, theories, and laws. And we just, uh, and we need to start now on talking about what research is like, what the procedures are that uh, we use in research. Remember we talked about the idea of a system, that the scientific method is systematic. It has a series of procedures and a series of processes that are linked together that wind up in some uh, desirable result, which is hopefully data that's analyzed and uh, makes some sense and contributes to the body of knowledge and science. So uh, when we talk about basic research, first thing, first step, is that you have to figure out what you want to find out. You have to formulate some sort of a research question. Um, Oh, I can't use that example, sorry. Um, I have a rather salacious example that may not be appropriate in the current company. Um, let's say I want to figure out why uh, some people like to use saltines when they, you know, crackers when they eat soup and other people don't. What is the, what's the difference between those kind of people? Um, probably it's just some sort of, you know, preference that really doesn't have any uh, underpinning, but maybe there's some genetic predisposition that causes people to want to use crackers in their soup instead of just having plain soup. And uh, maybe that's evolutionary, in the, our evolutionary past for some reason, that was um, a good thing to do. You know, maybe the, you know, whatever they put in the soup in the past kind of soaked up some of the uh, juices and didn't get the dirt on the bottom because, you know, cooking wasn't real clean and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I've got to figure out what I want to ask, why people, what causes people to want to use crackers in their soup. And then um, I have to develop a hypothesis. How would you uh, define a hypothesis in your own words, not in the textbook's language? Really, it is an educated guess. It's, it's a very specific uh, prediction, really, about what will happen in a particular situation. Yeah. So I might formulate a hypothesis. I don't know why I would say. Uh, people who are more introverted uh, prefer using uh, crackers in their soup. I don't know. Okay, so and but the hypothesis is typically a lot more reasonable than that. It's usually based on some prior research that's been done. You find some prior findings, some prior research has found a particular pattern in the data and in behavior, and you're trying to extend that, trying to figure out um, why did they get that result or why what are the factors that contributed to that result that may not have been studied originally, right? So I'm going to uh, develop my hypothesis. I'm going to design an experiment that's going to test the hypothesis. So I have to figure out, um, first of all, how am I going to measure, bless you, how am I going to measure what I want to measure? And what's that process called? You have to develop a um, operational definitions, right? 
um, you have to go through and um, figure out an operational definition that's going to operationalize what you want to study. So I have to figure out how I'm going to measure introversion. I also have to figure out how I'm going to observe people eating soup. You know, um, I'm going to have them come into a lab and give them a bowl of soup, and I'm going to have some crackers on the table, and maybe I'll have some uh, water there, and maybe I'll have uh, um, some cookies, you know, and maybe some of them will put cookies in their soup, and that'll be like probably an indicator of psychopathy or psychopathology, but uh, I don't know. So, um, so I designed the experiment. I set up the situation. I figure out how I'm going to measure uh, uh, introversion and how I'm going to measure putting crackers in soup, right? Does putting crackers in soup mean dipping them in? Does it mean leaving them there to soak up and, and disintegrate? You know, there's all kinds of very complex things you have to think through when you're designing a, a study and operationalizing the variables you want to study. Um, and then uh, you have to run the experiment. So I'm actually going to sit people down in front of a soup bowl and see what they do after I've measured their uh, introversion and extroversion. And the result of that is going to be data. Subject one, put crackers in soup. Subject two, put crackers in soup. Subject three, didn't put crackers in soup. Subject four, put crackers in soup. Subject five, didn't put crackers in soup. Right? Measuring my dependent variables. And uh, then I'm going to analyze the data. I'm going to have to organize and analyze the data. Try to come up with some pattern in the data that makes some sense. So I'm going to look now at the, I'm going to put on the, my little table of subjects and whether they put crackers in soup, I'm going to put their introversion score. How high, how high they score on introversion, how introverted they are. And then I'm going to try to figure out, is there a systematic relationship between the people who put the crackers in the soup and introversion? And I'm going to find out that there isn't, most likely. Because I truly don't believe there would be. And once I've uh, collected the data and looked for patterns and trends in the data, then I can maybe draw a conclusion. I did not find any pattern or trend of introversion with putting crackers in soup. Uh, therefore, there's some other factor that uh, we haven't, that we didn't measure. And then maybe, I'm sorry, and then maybe I'll actually suggest in the conclusions of the research other factors that I noticed that might be interesting to measure in the next time. You know, uh, the presence of water uh, decreases cracker use. And that's, a, that's, a, that's another variable that needs to be studied in the future. So the nice thing about experiments and research is there is no failed experiment. Even if the experiment doesn't find what you wanted it to find, there's always something interesting in there that you can develop a new experiment or new research to try to understand. So it's great for people who are narcissistic and don't like to fail at anything. Not that I am, but maybe I am. 
Okay. Questions on this basic procedure? I left out a couple things here, but this is the basic kind of flow of how things go. Uh, what's uh, what's really the difference between formulating a research question and formulating a hypothesis? The research question is probably a broader question about behavior, whereas the hypothesis is a specific prediction about what will occur given a specific situation. Okay. So I might, for example, in my next experiment form, you know, I'm still looking at... Um, why some people put crackers in soup and other people don't. Uh, and so my next experiment, might, the hypothesis might be the presence of water increases cracker use in soup eating. I don't know. It's always a prediction, yeah. It's always a prediction. A specific prediction. As opposed to a theory, which is a broader prediction of behavior. Uh, across multiple situations or multiple uh, conditions. Yeah, it takes into account a much broader set of uh, possible factors. Yeah. Okay, so as I said, I left out a few uh, uh, parts of the basic research process. One of those is, first of all, you have to figure out a population that you want to study. How would you define a population in your own words? A certain group of people. Want to expand on that? That are maybe specific to an area or culture, or maybe they're specific on demographics. But why would you choose that group? Because it has some relevance to your research question. Uh, or even your hypothesis, right? Um, so I have to choose what population I'm going to study. So uh, I want to make a generalized uh, statement about PCC college students, students at Portland Community College. Why do they put crack? Why do some of them put crackers in their soup and others don't put crackers in their soup? Um, then I have to take a sample from that population. Right? So a population is the larger group of people, PCC college students, and I want to take a sample, a subset of those uh, students. This is kind of a bad example, because if I want to take a sample, what's important about that sample? That it be what? That it be representative? and that it be the larger, the more likely it is to be representative, but also have to sample randomly. So I'm gonna, I want to randomly sample from this population, and all of those individuals are going to form my little sample, right? But... I can do a non-random sample, too. So I might say that my sample is not PCC college students, but this one specific part of PCC college students 
which is Psych-201A students, Tuesday, Thursday at 11 o'clock in TCB-201, SCB-201. So this particular classroom is my sample. It's a non-random sample, so it's not very useful for generalizing to the population, uh, but it's still a sample. Then I need to assign this uh, sample, members of this sample, I should say, um, I would need to assign them to experimental groups. And what are the two kinds of groups in a study? Control and experimental groups, right. And um, it's important that I do random assignment to these groups. That I give everybody in this sample an equal opportunity to be in the control or the experimental group. Otherwise, that if I don't do that, what does that possibly introduce? Bias, right, good. You got all the terminology down pretty good. Um, then I need to manipulate my independent variable. So if I'm doing a study of uh, soup in, uh, crackers and soup in this classroom, I might give you all bowls of soup crackers, and half of you I'll give you a glass of water, and the other half uh, I won't. And I'll see what the effect of having a glass of water is on cracker use in soup. All right? And then uh, I'm going to measure the dependent variable. How many of, how many of each group used crackers in their soup. Okay? And then I can compare what percentage of people in the experimental group that had uh, water used crackers versus the control group which didn't have water that used crackers. And I can see if there's some systematic relationship there, yeah. Um, so, are you talking about just replicating it? Well, yeah, replicating it, but opposite. Oh, oh, I see. So, uh, so there's a possibility that I may happen to have um, given the people, the, the people that I gave water to happen to have some personality characteristic that makes them want to have crackers in the soup. If I use random assignment, I should equally distribute those characteristics in the control group and the experimental group. So it shouldn't have an effect, but it's possible through random assignment to create that kind of bias. So that's why we want to replicate it in another group and see if we get the same results or run it with a larger set. So I'll, I'll take another sample from the population and run it and see what happens. Yeah, good. That's a good question because it's possible, yeah. We can, yeah. Uh, through so the question is, um, do you tr do we try in psychology to eliminate the effect of what are called 
confounding variables or what's called the third variable problem. Um, yeah, we can. Um, for example, as I said, there might be personality characteristics that are related to putting crackers in soup. People who are um, more conscientious um, use crackers. People who are, let's say, people who are more um, have a higher need for social acceptance or social desirability uh, use crackers and soup because everybody else uses crackers and soup, they think. So I might measure that among the sample that I use in my experiment, and then I can use statistical methods to control for the influence of that or to look at the influence of that. Um, it's called um, uh, using regression. I use um, regression formulas to try to see what the relative influence of these other variables is on the behavior. Yeah, you, what essentially what you do is through statistics is you remove the influence of those things. Yeah. So you essentially control for them. But another thing that might happen is through the process of seeing that one of those has a high explanatory value, I might run another experiment looking at why that has a high explanatory value. So. As long as I don't use it as a basis of selection, I'm okay. As long as I just measure it as part of the experiment, measure the, those characteristics, and don't use it as a basis for um, selecting people out, unless I have some theoretical basis for doing that. Or if I want to study a specific set of people, you know, a specific population, I might choose those people that have those characteristics. So let's say I want to study cancer survivors. I can't randomly choose from the whole population of PCC college students. I have to choose from the population of PCC college students who are cancer survivors because that's the population I want to generalize to. Yeah. Okay, so uh, what happens when I uh, manipulate and measure the dependent variables. So we're talking about independent variables and dependent variables. Um, so let me make sure you're clear on that because this is very confusing oftentimes to intro psych students because these terms are kind of weird. Um, so a dependent variable is always a measured behavior. Some behavior that you want to actually measure. Um, whereas an independent variable is always one of the conditions that you're manipulating in the experiment. Okay, I'll get that to that in a second. And so basically in experiments, we're always looking at uh, what effect changing the independent variable has on the dependent variable. We want to eliminate all other factors except for the independent variable. That's the only thing we want to change between the conditions. And that's, so, so that's what we're going to manipulate. 
the level of the independent variable. The level of the dependent variable is going to be the behavior that we're measuring. Now, what I put here is the idea that we don't always have to have an independent variable in a study. If we don't have an independent variable, it's not an experimental study. That's what, character, that's what distinguishes experiments from non-experiments. Um, so I might want to see, for example, is there some sort of systematic relationship between hair color and grades in my Psych-201A course? I don't have any specific prediction. Um, and I'm not going to manipulate any condition. I'm not going to randomly assign you to a hair color and dye your hair and then see what the effect is on your grades, right? Uh, in fact, I can't do that, really. I can't randomly assign you to hair color because you've already got a hair color. And that, studying that is called, it's a correlation, but a, 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 a variable that you can't change in a subject is part of an, what kind of study? Uh, no, ex post facto, that's the idea with the ex post facto studies, right? Um, so gender, I can't randomly assign you to being male or female. You already come to me in that condition, right? You already come to me with a specific hair color. I could change it by dyeing it, but that wouldn't be very helpful, I don't think. It might be. So your perception of your hair color perhaps changes your performance. What's that? Yeah, yeah, gender is a better example, obviously, yeah. So correlations are always looking at two dependent variables. Two things I'm measuring, there's no manipulation in there. I can do a correlation inside of an experiment, right? I can do it as part of my data analysis in an experiment, uh, but if I'm not manipulating the independent variable, it's not an experiment. If I'm just measuring two things and seeing if there's some systematic relationship between them, those two variables, then that's a correlation only. And that's a descriptive research study not an experimental research study. Like a survey is a descriptive research study, right? So um, in order to uh, kind of help you sort through the uh, terminology, I have uh, prepared a worksheet for you um, I'll pass these out, but we won't actually do them in class. You want to pass those around? Um, pass those around. Thanks. Um, and on the worksheet, essentially what I do is uh, I give you four different scenarios, and I ask you to identify the dependent and independent variables, and I give you an answer key on the back for... Um, what I would suggest is the answer. Um, actually, 
actually, it might be worthwhile going through the first example on these once they get around. How are you guys doing? Need some more? Yeah. Cheers. So uh, the first example on there says, uh, researchers want to discover the effect of crowds on an individual's anxiety. Oh. Sorry. Being kind of stingy with the copies. I uh, want to discover the effect of crowds on an individual's anxiety. Uh, they take measurements of heart rate to measure anxiety. They randomly assign people to being either in a crowd, the experimental condition, or uh, being alone, the control condition. Um, so the dependent variable in this example, um, heart rate, what else might you suggest? Anxiety, any other ideas? Being alone. Um, heart rate and anxiety are closer. Being alone is what? Um, it's part of the independent, it's one of the levels of the independent variable, right? Yeah, so we're, we're manipulating being alone or being in a crowd. So that's the independent variable. The dependent variable is what we're measuring. Um, we're, we're at, we are actually measuring heart rate. But when we talk about the dependent variable, um, usually we talk about what it is that we're trying to understand. So heart rate is being used uh, in place to try to get a measure of anxiety. There are a bunch of other possible measures that we could use to get at anxiety. Galvanic skin response, right? Um, what they use for lie detector tests, stuff like that. Um, we just happen to be using heart rate as a, uh, as, a as a variable that we're measuring to try to assess anxiety. So generally we would say the dependent variable is anxiety. The independent variable is crowdedness or crowd size or, yeah. Um, sort of, uh, sort of. That's one way. Whoops. That's one way to think of it. Let me go back here. Uh, hey, hey. So that's one way to think of it. For example, um, one way to think of it is the. The dependent variable, the value of the dependent variable depends on, hopefully, the value of the independent variable, right? We are hoping, we're hypothesizing, and part of our experiment is to find out if the value of this causes a change in that. And so this value should depend on the value of this. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And that helps us establish cause, a causal relationship, which is what experiments are all about, right?
So in a zero crowd size independent variable condition, I would expect that it would have an effect on the dependent variable that it would be lower. The heart rate would be lower. The anxiety would be lower. In the 100 crowd size condition, uh, I might expect that it would have an effect on the, the, the effect of the dependent variable would depend on that 100 and it might be more anxiety, right? Yeah. Um, it's really sort of interchangeable. If we, if we can be, if we have shown in prior studies, that's important. If we've shown in prior studies that heart rate is a valid measure of anxiety, then we can say we're measuring anxiety. But if this is the first study that we've run and we don't have any theoretical or, or uh, experimental research in the past that has shown empirically that anxiety is related to heart rate, then that would be a study in itself to try to establish that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question, though. Um, before we get into this, let's take a break. It's about 10 of. Uh, can you come back here about 12 noon or maybe just a couple of minutes after? So we're back from a break. Um, so in an experiment, remember, what we really want to try to nail down is um, does, can we establish a causal relationship between changing the independent variable and the results we get and the dependent variable measures? can we establish a relationship that we can use to predict what will happen in, a in another experiment next time? Um, so how can we be sure then that the results are due to changing the independent variable and not some other cause? What do we have to do when we design the uh, experiment? Yeah. So make sure there's no other extraneous kinds of um, variables that are involved. What else? Yeah. Okay. So uh, anticipate that there might there might be some interference. What else? Yeah. Good. Um, have a control to compare it to. And what does that do for us? It sets a baseline and it. You're all, and it makes sure that you're only changing one thing, right? And that helps eliminate this problem of extraneous variables that might be changing. Um, because if you make the control condition 
and the experimental condition exactly the same with the exception of what the independent variable is that you're manipulating or changing, you're isolating that change, right? And so that's what we do with um, control and experimental conditions. Um, when we talk about the experimental condition, we usually talk about it as a treatment group. So it's the group that's getting whatever condition is we want to study typically. So in drug uh, trials, for example, um, the experimental condition is the group that gets the drug, right? Versus the control condition, which is the lack of the variable that we want to study, the lack of treatment. And in the case of drug uh, trials, that would be the placebo group, a group that has everything the same except they don't get the drug. They get some substitute for the drug that doesn't have the drug in it. But that substitute for the drug has to be exactly the same as this with the exception of the active ingredient. Yeah, yeah, and they don't know. They're going to be blind, right? That's another terminology in, in experimental studies. They're going to be blind to whether they get the placebo or the drug. And in a double blind study, who else is ignorant of whether it's the placebo or the drug? The researcher themselves or the experimenter themselves, yeah. Um, usually you have a research assistant and you give them the drug and they don't know which drug it is. It looks the same. They all, all the pills look the same. Only the people who are collecting the data know based on what, what participant number it is, whether it's uh, a treatment or a placebo. Um, so the presence of the independent variable versus the absence of the independent variable. Now, what's the point of double-blind experiments? What does that help avoid? Yeah. Yeah, so the researcher has a hypothesis, and they want to try to get their hypothesis to come out, right? Um, even though in, in, in science we're always trying to falsify our hypothesis, really we still want our hypothesis to be true. So I could perhaps, in the process of giving you the pill, subtly influence your behavior, right? Um, I mean, these, these, you, you would be amazed at the things that you wouldn't think would have any effect. For example, um, I just read a, some research on um, test questions. Um, if I include red in the question on the exam, your performance on the exam will be lower than if I just write the questions in black or green. Just the color red will drop your performance. And it's not that I'm, you know, putting red in the answer, the correct answer or the incorrect answer. It doesn't matter. It's just the presence of the color red on the exam somewhere uh, actually has a measurable effect. And so you'd be surprised at the kind of weird, subtle things that we can put into giving, you know, giving the dose that might influence the results. Yeah. Did you have a question? Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. Who knows what the cause is? Yeah, yeah, that's still to be un investigated. Um, now, the thing with experimental conditions is we don't always have just one experimental condition, uh, one level of the uh, independent variable. Sometimes we have multiple levels of the independent variable. So um, I might want to study the effect of one beer on memory, but also the effect of two beers on memory. And those are going to be two different levels of the independent variable. Whereas the placebo condition would be uh, placebo beer. We can actually, we actually can make this in the lab. Odul's actually has a, a trace amount of alcohol. And we want to totally eliminate alcohol from the equation. Uh, what's that? Yeah, we can actually uh, do it in the lab. It looks like beer, tastes like beer, smells like beer, but doesn't have any beer. Uh, so that would be the placebo. And then we would um, give you, uh, we would give you the placebo beer and add in, you know, a specific amount of alcohol to make sure that we're very tightly controlling the dosages of uh, alcohol. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so this is how we very carefully control the influence of these independent variables. What's that? Yeah. So, um, so the thing is that uh, uh, actually in research studies on uh, behavior and alcohol, um, there's, a fair, there's, there's a fair amount of studies that show that for at least some people, um, the disinhibition that alcohol creates, like, you know, dancing on tables and, you know, walking around with a lampshade on your head and saying stupid things and um, asking people out that you shouldn't have asked out and sexual promiscuity, those kinds of disinhibited behaviors actually exist as part of placebo conditions. So we'll give people placebo beer and put them in a party situation and they'll actually, because they think they're drinking real beer, their behavior becomes disinhibited. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. 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 So, the so this idea of placebo effects is quite strong. Um, so again, as I said, the idea with um, control and experimental conditions hold everything constant between the conditions except for the independent variable or the level of the independent variable, right? So um, I gave you, I, while you were out at your break, I distributed um, worksheet 1A, which uh, in addition to giving you practice on identifying the dependent and independent variables, also gives you practice on identifying uh, the control and the experimental conditions. Um, and again, it has uh, answers on the back. These worksheets are for your own use. You don't have, we won't be, I won't be collecting them or correcting them or anything. Uh, but when you do them, if it doesn't come out quite like you expected, bring questions in next time and we can talk about why you got results that I didn't get. That doesn't mean, no, the answers on the back don't mean that they're the definitive answers. You know, it's not like that. Um, there is room for sort of possibly using other terminology. So um, I'll let you do those at your leisure because I'd rather move on to some other stuff today.
Um, okay, so let's watch. Uh, I'm going to watch a little video clip here. This is a video clip from a um, TV show that was on in Britain called uh, The Truth About Female Desire. It's almost like a reality TV show where uh, they bring uh, eight women into uh, into a boarding school in the summertime that's you know it's empty so they're using it as a research facility and they're bringing in researchers from uh, all over the world who study sexual behavior and so they're looking at female sexual response essentially and so um, the researcher that you'll see here uh, Eric Jansen I think it's Eric uh, or Derek uh, is from the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research, which, which is at Indiana University, uh, the first and uh, still the um, largest and most prominent uh, sex research institute in the world. Um, and so uh, he's going to run with these women a study of the effects of uh, placebos. So I'll uh, let it explain itself. Today, this pheromone-like drug increases sexual arousal. On the other hand, I have a drug that, just like this one, was initially FDA-approved for treatment of nasal congestion. <laughs> they took it off the market after some later trials showed that in addition to things like drowsiness, it actually could negatively impact sexual response. It is perfectly safe for the rest, other than the drowsiness, you know, and, and the possible negative effect on sexual response. This one is also perfectly safe. The only side effects that are known about it are that it can increase your body temperature a little bit. It could lead to some facial flushing, and <coughs> it could also create a bit of a dry throat. So let's start with Emma. Yeah. This is the... He's given a sexual stimulant to Emma, Charlie, and Carlene, all scoring at the lower end of sexual arousability, and a sexual depressant to Julie, Amy, and Hannah, three of the most highly sexed women in the group. Bye. Bye. Wearing the placebo necklaces. 
Earlier, Julie discovered that she scored 3.4 for sexual excitation. This makes her sex drive one of the highest in the group. Before giving her the necklace, Eric played her an erotic story to find out what her normal response would be. True to form, she liked it a lot. I'm finished. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie, I felt 
my legs felt heavy. My mind told me that that drug was doing something. I wasn't faking it. See, I think that's amazing. Uh, so for me, what is most amazing is that things, that, just like there was, like for me, there was, a phys- there was a physical kind of show of yeah. what, I didn't even know I was flushed until these girls yeah. just told me now, but I flushed. So um, it's pretty astounding how strong uh, the effects of um, placebos can be on our behavior and the effects of what we think will happen uh, in our bodies and uh, and how our minds can actually affect very strongly what's going on physiologically for us, not only psychologically, right? You know, the, the flushing that she went through was a physiological response that involves the autonomic nervous system, which is outside our voluntary control. It's an involuntary response, so it's bizarre. Yeah? Uh, no, it wouldn't be considered part of metaphysics. No. Um, yeah. So... Uh, if you uh, run through that worksheet, that may help with um, some of those, uh, some of that terminology. Um, I'd like to actually run an experiment here in class, and so um, this is a chance for you to do some estimation. Um, You actually um, only need to complete the first question, really. And uh, do this on your own. Please don't share your responses. got an answer? Anybody still working on the first one? Okay. Let me know when you're done. Everybody got the first one? Anybody still working on the first one? No? Okay. Um, So what I'd like to get is uh, some data. So uh, could you give me 
Uh, the number of your estimate for the length of the Mississippi River. And I'm going to go down the row there. Three seven five nine five zero seven hundred. Yeah, up front here. Yes. Five hundred. Okay. Um, there's no correct answer here, so don't worry about getting it right. What was it? Six fifty. Seven hundred. 650, 700, 200. Okay, now um, I'm going to start on this side of the room and go that way. What's your estimate? 2,000. Okay. 1,000. 2,000. 2,000. And one more up front here. 800. Did you notice uh, generally any sort of systematic difference in your responses? That side of the room is larger than this side of the room. Um, I'm sorry, what's your name? Halsey. Uh, Halsey, would you please read uh, question number one? Is the Mississippi River longer or shorter than 500 miles? Uh, M. What's your name? I'm sorry. Remy. Remy. Yeah. Um, would you please read the first question? Is the Mississippi River longer or shorter than 3,000 miles? Uh, do you think that the question had an effect on your behavior? Yeah. You're darn right it did. Here's the data. So the average estimate in the 500-mile group was 640 miles. The average estimate in the 3,000-mile group was 1,557 miles. Um, I like this experiment because it demonstrates the technique. I created two conditions. Uh, I didn't use random assignment to the conditions, but I used a non-random assignment, right? Uh, and I exposed you to the stimulus, which was the question, the number of miles in the question, and I measured your behavior, which was your estimate of the length of the Mississippi River. And then I organized, collected and organized the data. I did my data analysis to see what the average was so that I could get some general tendency of some central tendency of what the group means were, what the group averages were. Uh, and it turns out that uh, the way that the question is phrased 
actually has an effect on your estimates. Um, what's an alternative explanation for why this group got uh, 640 and this group got 1,500? Any ideas? Besides the number, what, what alternative explanations might you have besides the independent variable? Yeah. No, longer or shorter than. The only difference is the number. Yeah. So the people who um, took geography more recently sit closer to the door? That's kind of unlikely, isn't it? The smarter people sit closer to the door because they want to rush out to their next class and be sure to be the first people in the class. Because this side of the room actually got closer to the actual length, which is uh, between 2,300 and 2,500. Um, so uh, this, this demonstrates one other thing besides the experimental procedure. There's a, a phenomenon in decision making and cognition known as the um, anchoring heuristic. And um, you'll learn more about this when we talk about cognition and, and in social psychology. But if I give you some value in a question like this, you'll use that as an anchor. And your estimates will start to vary from that value. If I went around the room and just randomly asked people, what do you think the length of the Mississippi River is, I would probably get something maybe uh, in between these numbers or probably something closer to this number um, versus giving you a particular number from which you range your estimates. You anchor that number. So the anchoring number here is 500. The anchoring number here is 3,000. And uh, so it's, it's perfect. You guys did great. Thank you. Uh, confirmed my hypothesis. Uh, the median, um, 700 this group, 2,000 this group. What's the difference between the mean and the median? The mean is the average, what we generally call average. It's the arithmetic average to be technical. You basically add all these numbers up, divide by 11 in this case, and get that number. The median is what number? Not the most common, that's called the mode. When you put them in a sequential or ordinal order, um, in order from uh, lowest to highest, the middle number will be uh, the median. If I took these numbers and arranged them from 200 to 950, and I took number six, because that's the middle value in one through 11, that would be uh, 700. Yeah, good. Good. So why is this, why is the median in some cases a better measure of central tendency than the mean? Because of outliers. Um, extreme values tend to pull the average a lot. So the median is 700. There's probably an extreme value that's pulling the, the mean off of 700. And that's the 200. This is, 
Yeah, they're called outliers or extreme values, yeah. So this is the outlier here that's tending to pull the mean down. Uh, there's some outlier here that must be pulling the mean down. Um, there's a couple of them, right? See, most of these are 1,000, 2,000 um, or above, with the exception of these. So they're pulling it down a little bit. So if I were to um, take the average salary in Portland, I would probably get some reasonably high number like $90,000 a year or something. If I were to take the median salary, I would probably get a much lower number like 25 or 30,000, right? Maybe a little higher, I don't know. I don't know, there's a lot of poor people in Portland. Yeah, so. Um, okay. You know, I think like the median income for a four-person family in the United States is 26000 a year. What's that? I don't know what it is, yeah. That'd be good research to look up. Let me know. Yeah. Okay. So any uh, questions, ideas on that? Well, let me ask you some questions then. Um, what are, what's the, what are the independent variables there, independent variable? What was I manipulating? The anchoring number, the number of miles in the question, yeah. Uh, what are the dependent variables? Not the Mississippi River. Your estimates of the length of the Mississippi River, yeah. Your behavior, that's the behavior that you're that I'm eliciting from you or that you're emitting, yeah. I'm eliciting it. Um, what is the population that we're studying? You could say PCC psych students or intro psych would probably be more uh, accurate. Um, since I'm not taking a sample from all the PCC intro psych classes though, it's really just this one classroom, yeah. Yeah, I can't generalize very easily outside this classroom. Although, you're probably a fairly representative sample of PCC intro psych students, right? Your characteristics are probably pretty average, at least for day students. Night students is gonna be a different story too, because they generally have a different demographic than the day classes. Um, is there a random sample from this population? No, not really, because I'm taking all of you, if we think of the classroom as the population. And certainly not if I think of the population as PCC intro psych students, because this is just one classroom that I'm selecting for, uh, for convenience, because you happen to be here, right? Uh, what was the experimental condition? No, what's the experimental condition? So the an the anchoring number. Um, the the notice that the experimental condition is usually the same as or related in some way to the independent variable. So the experimental condition would be yeah right. 
So the experimental condition is the the value of the anchoring number, really. There are two experimental groups in this study. What's the control group? The control condition. There is none in this case. I didn't give you, I didn't give a third of you a questionnaire that said, please estimate the length of the Mississippi River without giving you an anchoring number, right? Yeah. That would be a control condition. That would be a control group that we could compare. Um, it was uh, the value in the question that you are ranging your estimate from as a result of the anchoring heuristic. So you could just say the number of miles. You don't have to say the anchoring number. Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. Are there... Does it always have to be a value that acts as an anchoring heuristic? And I don't know that. I don't know that. Um, is, did I do random assignment to the experimental conditions? Yes. How? No. These people are sitting closer to the door. They're sitting closer to the window. I might have, but I didn't in this case. Um, so really, there wasn't. Um, you know, I created two groups of convenience for myself, right? Because otherwise, I would have to, as I go through, I would have to ask you what what number was on your questionnaire, and then that would destroy the whole illusion. What's that? Yeah and then collect them back and record what the anchoring number was and what your uh, response was. Yeah. But I don't have time for that in, an ex in a demonstration like this. Um, confused? Okay, what's your question? Okay. Um, anybody could have sat anywhere, but do you notice that you always typically sit in the same seats? You pick where you want to sit in a classroom. So that makes it non-random, fundamentally. There's a characteristic of you that puts you in a particular place in the classroom. I don't know what that is. Well, there is, there is a predictable relationship between like GPA or grades and how close to the front of the room people sit typically. But um, yeah, or whether, whether the teacher smells bad, yeah. Yeah, if I had if I had randomly um, if I had flipped a coin and said um, based on the coin flip this side's going to get 500 miles or 3,000 miles, right? That would be more of a random assignment. Yeah. How did you? I just started on this side and the 500 numbers on the top here. That's all. <laughs> But there are non-random characteristics of the people that I chose. Yep. 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 If it ha in order to be random, 
all of you have to have an equal chance of winding up in the 500 mile group or the 3,000 mile group. But you didn't based on where you were sitting. Yes. It's not it's not strictly random assignment. It it is not it is not completely intentional non-random assignment though. I'll agree with that. But to be random assignment, there has every every individual has to equally have a chance to wind up in one of the two groups, and that wasn't the case because this side was getting one condition and this side was getting the other condition. Okay. You know, we when we talk in these terms, you know, we have these very specific kinds, this very specific kinds of language and these very specific kinds of um, conditions that need to be fulfilled. Um, and so um, it is loosely random, but not right. not strictly random. Yeah. Still wouldn't be because there might be there might be characteristics of people on this side of the room that are not random from characteristics of people on that side of the room. Who knows? I can't predict it. That's why I have to make it random. What conclusions can you draw from this experiment? That the anchoring heuristic has an effect on estimates. I think that would be a reasonable conclusion, but only in this classroom. We can't generalize outside this classroom necessarily. Yeah. In an experiment, we would want to. So we would want to take a random sample of all PCC students or all intro psych students. Yeah. So not much, we can't really draw much from this particular. We'd have to replicate it, and we'd have to have much tighter controls on how it was run. Oh, you cheated. Oh, yeah, how many other people? So there's so there is a social influence effect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is a social influence effect. Um there there is a phenomenon known as social contagion uh where people uh will actually um if uh, for example if um some mysterious illness occurs in an individual or a couple of individuals in a group all of a sudden it'll start appearing in other individuals even if there's no 
physiological cause. Yeah, so social influences are very strong. So I'd encourage you to take social psychology if you're more interested in studying that stuff. I'm teaching that next quarter. So what do we get out of research? We get data. Psychologists love data. And what I did in the experiment is I measured the dependent variables and I collected the data and I analyzed it using descriptive statistics, the mean and the median. Um, and it's important to differentiate between descriptive statistics, which merely describe the characteristics of the data or of the uh, behavior, and inferential statistics. Um, the difference is that this can tell us something about what's going on in here, right? Inferential statistics can allow us to um, infer that the results we get in this sample will occur in the population. So they allow us to make much better generalizations about the results that we get in a particular experiment. Um, uh, examples of that are t-test, which takes two groups and compares the um, average of the two groups to find out how likely that there is really a statistical, statistically significant difference between those groups and um, uh, how likely it is that that exi would exist in the population. Um, analysis of variance is another uh, inferential statistic that allows us uh, be the best thing it allows us to do is compare more than just two groups, to compare multiple groups uh, between each other. Um, and I, don't, I won't go into much detail on those. Um, you don't need to know too much about that. Just that there are these two different types of statistics and they allow us to do two different things. Inferential statistics, therefore, are much more powerful in terms of experiments and in terms of explaining cause, causal relationships, right? Um, and so ultimately what inferential statistics do is they say, are the differences between these groups, can we say that it's reliably due to the independent variable rather than some chance difference in the groups based on sampling error? I had a sampling error here. Um, you know, I, I sampled non-randomly. And there might be some characteristic of this group that, you know, they happen not to have taken as many geof geography courses as this group of, you know, who knows. Um, we can, even when we randomly sample from a population, we can get biased samples just by statistical variation, right? Not particularly, no. no. We don't have the... Um, means to do that, really. So that's one of the problems with people assume that if we do things randomly, that we'll always get sort of an even mixture of stuff. And we will if we get a large enough data set. But guess what? Um, which one of these outcomes is more likely? If I uh, flip a coin,
If I flip a coin six times, which one of these results is more likely based on statistical chance? They're equal. Each time you have a 50% chance of getting one or the other. And the value of the second uh, flip doesn't, isn't uh, influenced by the first flip. And that's, you know, statistical inferences. People make, think that um, things are generally more random than they really are. So even when we do a, ran a completely random sample, completely random assignments, sometimes we can get biased uh, results. So we always have to be watching for uh, variables that might vary um, non-randomly between groups. Yeah. Yeah, question here. Um, no, no. I will, when I talk about learning and conditioning, I will talk about the law of effect, which was um, written by Edward Thorndike. Um, but it's, it was, when he wrote it, it was too early to call it a law. It's too young of a science to really have laws. Yeah. Yep, lots of theories, yep, that are being tested, yep. Uh, so that's all we'll have time for today. Uh, I will see you on Tuesday. We'll finish up a little bit on this stuff on Tuesday, and then we'll go into uh, neuroscience. So please do start reading Chapter 3. You're welcome.